0: My grandmother was uh, the most important person in my life shaping me as a writer because she gave me all my books. When I was a little girl, she gave me my first real book, which is Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. I was eight or nine, and that changed my whole life. I had no idea at the time, but it was like the main, the great book of my whole life that my grandmother gave me. Then she gave me other books and she gave me a toy typewriter then she gave me a real typewriter (laughs) and so she started me on a world of storytelling and reading that's been my whole life.
1: You just heard the voice of the American author Joyce Carol Oates. My name is Lynn Ullman and together with the House of Literature in Oslo I've created the podcast How to Proceed, where we invite writers from around the world to discuss reading and writing, art and creativity, and the world we live in right now. This special episode with Joyce Carol Oates was made possible by a collaboration between the House of Literature in Oslo, Louisiana Literature in Denmark, and the International Writer's Stage in Stockholm. Certain books and writers are important at a certain time of life, and then maybe you leave them behind, You grow apart. You don't unpack them the next time you move house. They disappear from your bookcase. Joyce Carol Oates is not one of those writers. She has moved house with me countless times. She's been with me always, ever since I, as a young woman, started reading her. Her work is relevant, bold, vulnerable, luminous, visceral. Perhaps you will recognize this feeling. You read something of hers. Fiction, nonfiction, memoir, essays, lectures, literary reviews. And then you catch yourself thinking about it many years later, remembering where you were when you read it, the emotional impact it had on you, how it made you want to be more curious, more attentive. And if you are a writer, how it made you want to write. Yes, she is one of the world's most critically acclaimed writers. She's one of the best, frequently mentioned as a favorite for the Nobel Prize. The core of her own work, according to Oates herself, is to bear witness through literature. I'm so incredibly proud to be joined by Joyce Carol Oates for a conversation about memories and loss, about her mother and grandmother, about the United States today, about writing, about failure and about boxing. So I want to start by just saying, Joyce Carol Oates, it is such an honor to welcome you here to the House of Literature in Oslo. I have wanted to speak to you for so long. You are a dream guest and I'm so happy that you're here. I wish that we could receive you in person. Um, That will be another time. But right now, this is the way it is. So welcome. Welcome to Oslo. Thank you, I wish I were there.
0: (laughs) Where are you? I'm in my house in Princeton, which is four miles outside the village of Princeton in a wooded area. When I look out the window, I see all trees. What else do you see? Well, if I lean forward, I see a creek and there is a lake. So I'm I'm in a nice area. It's good for contemplation, good for a writer.
1: And you mentioned when we were chatting a little earlier that it was, it was an okay place to be in a lockdown because you can go outside.
0: Yes, that has been really my salvation. When I was a little girl, I grew up on a small farm. And part of my whole spiritual being is really connected with the outside world, with being able to walk in the woods or walk along a country road or through fields and look at wildflowers. So this is my salvation. If I lived in a city in a high-rise apartment building, I would be trapped because our government has handled the virus so poorly. There's no plan. So many people are marooned in the cities. So what do you think is going to happen now? Well, speaking from my position right now, I think we're looking ahead very hopefully and optimistically to the election. Of course, we don't know what will happen in upcoming days and weeks, because we've been living in a very unpredictable situation for several years now, where every day almost there's some new difficulty or some new paradox.
1: I certainly want to come back to that and what the author or the artist's role is in a time like this. But I want to start on a slightly different note, because in this podcast, it's still a new podcast, How to Proceed?, I always wanna start by asking my guest, what are you reading right now?
0: Well, that's a, good, that's a good question. I'm always reading something often to review because I do a lot of reviewing. So I was asked by TLS to review a posthumous collection of short stories by Brian Moore. And so I've been rereading and reading Brian Moore, whose work I've always admired but I also have been reading new novels by his that I had not read. So I've been spending a good deal of time reading Brian Moore. His most famous novel, I think, is his first novel, The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn. I think he's best known for that.
1: So are you writing an essay on his whole work?
0: Probably just a review of the stories with reference to the other novels. But before that, I was reading War and Peace, with an online book club, which started in early March when we went into quarantine in the United States. So a whole, thousands of us were reading War and Peace every day. How did you find it? That was wonderful to be, reading with a th- <laughs> to be reading with several thousand people every day was a different experience. And then people would post their comments on Twitter or somewhere. And so the collective reading was very interesting. In what way was it interesting? To get those opinions, my colleague and friend Yi Young Lee, who's at Princeton and she's a, a very well known writer, was leading the group. So she would often post some commentary on War and Peace. I have never done any reading with a book club. That was my first experience. So the pandemic and the quarantine have some positive features.
1: You know, I just read Life as a Rat, uh, and Life as a Rat has, is newly published in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. And I was immensely moved by it. I actually cried a few times. It, it moved me on a very personal and a very um, sort of gut level. It was like a fist to the gut, both for the violence. It describes the murder of a um, young African-American boy- and also the fate of a very young girl who rats on her brothers because it was her brothers who killed the boy. There's something about your writing and about how you describe the vulnerability of girls in so many of your books. Can you talk about your obsession with with the vulnerability of girls?
0: Obviously, I'm drawing upon my own memories of being a girl. And my deepest memories are of feeling very emotionally connected with my family. And so the nightmare would be to lose my family. And I think no matter how old you become, in your deepest heart, you still have that feeling of intense yearning. It's even beyond love. It's something almost like what an infant feels for the mother. And could you possibly exist without the family? because for many of us, we are expelled, either because of personal choices or time. As time goes by, we lose our parents. I remember thinking that I could not, I just could not live without my parents. And then when my father died first, it was the most devastating experience. I felt that I could write, the rest of my life I could write a novel one after another, about that loss, which was enormous. Then I lost my mother, and I wrote a novel called Missing Mom. So I think those deepest losses for us are universal, and we connect with one another. It isn't a matter that we cannot lose these people. We have to lose them. That's nature. But how do we survive? How do we live? Do we assimilate some of them inside us and we move on? In some cases, we have to repudiate. We have to reject. In some cases, we have to embrace. So all these possibilities are very exciting for a writer. In what way? To explore. For instance, Viola is so devastated when she loses her family She doesn't understand the way the reader does. The reader knows that the family doesn't deserve her. We know that her ethical position is much stronger than theirs, but she doesn't know that. She made a decision to align herself with a morality that goes beyond the family, rather than protecting her brothers who are guilty of a hate crime, as it's called in the United States, as a hate crime. Hate crime is something enacted against somebody because you hate his ethnic identity. We know that she's superior to these brothers, but she doesn't really feel that way. She's only 11 or 12. I mean, she's very young. She feels guilty for having confessed for them, whereas the reader knows that she should not feel guilty. So the novel is really about her working through her guilt. And when she realizes that she's a free agent, she's a young woman, about 20, by the end of the novel, her life as a rat is over, and she moves into her own life. So at the end of the novel, the life of the rat ends, but her own personal life begins after the end of the novel. I hope that readers understood that.
1: I think absolutely. Um, (laughs) But vulnerability and a girl's vulnerability. And I think you said something very interesting that I wanted to unpack about, well, you used the word expelled, you know, that she's expelled or the girls that we're all expelled at some moment or other in our life. But also that the reader knows something that the little girl doesn't know. She feels guilty for having done the right thing. But she doesn't know that that's what she's feeling. And this young girl's guilt and shame and love and yearning and the fear of being expelled and actually being expelled. I mean, this goes through so many of your novels, I think, with the young girl or the young woman in that position of being expelled and feeling ashamed.
0: Yes, I'm fascinated by the tension between being loyal to a very small unit like a family or a tribal unit the ancestors or a national identity, do we have a morality that's higher than that? Do we have an allegiance to something beyond just the family? And I think that we do. However, in, as life as it's lived, we're living in a domestic situation. So if you speak up against your own family, you will be expelled. And therefore, you have that tremendous loss. I think in the united states and it's an issue that comes up quite often in terms of politics people are loyal to their party In politics where they should be loyal to their country And there should be a morality standard of ethics that's beyond politics and party And this is an issue that's in the air that's discussed all the time in the united states
1: do you think family is a kind of a little society? So that w- when you're a writer and writing about a family, you are also writing about the structure and politics of society.
0: Yes, the United States is an immigrant country. The United States is founded and is consists of people who migrated here from other countries. So it's the whole country is like a it's like an immigrant culture, but there are many immigrant cultures. So as each culture. Of immigrants came here. For instance, the Irish, particularly after the potato famine, many, many Irish immigrants came to this country, and they all settled in one area, in in urban areas. Therefore, they were ostracized. Irish were considered like African Americans. They were considered not white, and they were discriminated against. Therefore, if you were in an Irish immigrant family and a neighborhood, you had intense loyalty to your own family and to your neighborhood, to your ethnic identity. And so some of these ethnic identities, in order to make the way in America, they had to resort to criminal activities. Therefore, there is instilled in people an intense feeling of loyalty. And you don't go outside your, you know, your little tribe. But unfortunately, within the tribe, if something goes wrong, for instance, there might be sexual abuse of girls by priests. Should you tell on them or should you just be very quiet? There's always been this culture of quiet. Say nothing. I think somebody wrote a book about Ireland, about the IRA and their culture. Say nothing. You know, you don't tell. In my novels, I often explore the tension between the tribal and familiar injunction of saying nothing or admitting when there is a crime or going outside to the authority. That's why what Violet Rue does in My Life as a Rat is perceived as so disloyal because she's gone outside the family. She's actually spoken to the authority. She talks to police officers about what her her brothers have done. Now, Violet didn't really do this voluntarily. She only did it because she had an emotional collapse. She was a nervous wreck. She started crying and she was at school and a nurse, the school nurse was taking care of her. She didn't go to the police station and start talking about her brothers. It was really inadvertent. You know, one of the most
1: moving scenes in the book is when Violet Rue goes to speak to her priest. And I was wondering if you could read that for us now.
0: Yes, I'll be happy to read that. Violet is increasingly anxious. She can't sleep. She's afraid of her brothers because she thinks that they know how she feels. And so she has no one to go to. She tries to talk to her mother, but her mother just doesn't hear so she goes to the priest. Catholics go to priests for confession before they go to communion. And so Violet is only a girl of 11 or 12. She goes to the priest. I said, hunched and unmoving, unable to speak, and this is in the confessional. Instead, I began crying. There was a startled pause. I was such a big girl, 12 years old, I had not cried in the presence of others for years. And I was sure that Father Greevy knew who I was, if not by name. I was one of the Kerrigan daughters. It was clear Father Greevy did not like this violation of custom. I could hear him breathing audibly. I could imagine his eyes shifting in their sockets in alarm and exasperation. But the confessor had no alternative to asking me what was wrong, calling me my dear child. And so I told him. I tried to tell him, sniffling and choking and trying to keep my voice lowered so that those who were seated in pews close by could not hear. In a shaky voice, I told him about my brothers coming home late on the night that Henry and Johnson had been beaten and what I'd overheard but Father Greeby interrupted me, objecting that I had no idea what I was saying. These are serious accusations," he says. At once I was silent. My heart was hammering in my chest. In a whisper, Father Greeby said that my brother's lives were at stake. No, no, he did not want to hear more. In an instant, the peculiar lethargy of the confession had vanished. The thick-bodied priest, middle-aged querulous. With his rat-colored hair, his fattish nose, his habit of loudly clearing his throat, had been awakened rudely from his doze and was sitting upright, squintering. Nodding at me through the small, grilled window with a hawk's eyes, alert and sharp. He wanted no more hysteria about a baseball bat. No more about Hadrian Johnson, who hadn't belonged to his parish. He did not want trouble. If questioned, he would claim he had no idea who I was. As a confessor, he did not wish to know who his penitents were, nor had he heard the girl's faltering words clearly. It seemed that the confession had ended. This would be the final confession of my life. Thank you very much, Joyce Carol Oates,
1: for reading from my life as a rat. You know, this is a scene where you meet a powerful man and a young girl. A few years ago, I read another book that a lot of people are reading again or reading for the first time now of yours, uh, Blackwater. Also about a very powerful man in office and a young woman. This relationship between the very powerful, abusive man and the vulnerable woman is a theme. In much of your work. Why is that?
0: I think I discovered the theme as I was writing <laughs> because as you speak of it, when you, you just mentioned the black water I saw the connection but I'm not sure that I always see these connections when I'm writing. I tend to write about subjects that are out in the culture. Remember Stundahl spoke of the novel as a mirror held up to to reality. So I'm basically writing about what's out there in the world, and we do see the misuse of power in a patriarchal society.
1: How do you see that? For instance, Blackwater is is now being read and reread uh, by women of all ages in the age of Me Too, and in the light of Me Too.
0: I hope that people are rereading and with new eyes. I wrote another novel too that very much is part of the Me Too. Um, atmosphere Called Foxfire confessions of a girl gang. And so along with that novel and Blackwater and maybe some others. I really was prefiguring The issues of the me too movement the sort of compulsion that is put upon girls not to talk not to complain and if a girl does speak of some injustice or sexual offense against her She's likely the one to be ostracized not the man or the boy That is a prevailing situation. I think still in the united states The me too movement has had a large effect. I think Maybe more in urban areas and more developed parts of the country The united states is a very uneven country of many regions So people who have never come to the united states don't understand how massive the country is and much of it is rural unpopulated and, and not well educated and so people who live there are very conservative they are often conservative Christians they're very different from the urban dwellers who are diverse who maybe any kind of religion uh, different ethnic backgrounds immigrants tend to live in the cities rather than in the farming rural areas So our country is very uh, uneven. The Me Too movement is a phenomenon of a more urban, developed, educational part of the United States. The Me Too movement has no meaning. It has almost no significance in fundamentalist Christian America. That wouldn't wouldn't really be an issue at all. But you've been writing
1: about young girls or young women being abused or expelled or neglected by powerful men for such a long time. I'm just trying to... Because when we started this conversation, you also talked about your own memories as a girl and that you carried them with you. Is this something that you still carry with you, that feeling? I mean, you are now a writer, an author, a critic, a novelist, a world-renowned, and you have written over 100 books. Um, That girl... That vulnerable girl that is expelled, that is hurt, that is abused, do you still carry her with you? Because it's such a, it's so powerful when you write about it.
0: Well, this is just coincidental, but my mother, of course, my mother was born a very long time ago. My mother was born like 100 years ago, actually. She passed away like 20 years ago. When was she born exactly 100 years ago? Or well, in the early 1900s. Yes. She might have been born around 1917. I don't, I don't remember exactly, but uh, the point I'm making is that my mother was the last born of nine children in an immigrant family. They were immigrants from Hungary. They were very, very poor, and they lived in a Hungarian enclave in Buffalo, New York. And because they were so poor... When my mother's father died, he probably died quite young, she was given away by her mother to a family that had no children. When she was only nine months old, she was given away. So many, many years later, when my mother was over 80 years old, she was still remembering that. She was remembering that she was given away, that she... Became like an orphan and she was adopted by another family And so I was interviewing my own mother for oprah magazine And my mother started crying. She said, you know, I just felt so sad I was given away when I was a little girl Because my mother didn't want me In other words, my mother had a complete life. She was a wonderful wonderful mother with a family and a a loving husband she still remembered what it felt like to be given away. So we never get over that. We carry the earliest feelings of our lives with us to the very end. So when I'm writing about a subject that seems remote in time, it's very immediate to me.
1: So you are in in some way carrying your mother's story with you. So when you write about a 12-year-old, There's something of your mother in
0: that story? Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I have a new novel called Night Sleep, Death, the Stars, which is a novel that spans a generation. It's about a woman of about 60 who loses her husband. And she has children. And the novel explores the grief that they all feel, like the youngest daughter loses her father, her brothers and sisters lose their father. To each one of them is a slightly different father. They have different perspectives on this person who has died. So the widow is grieving for her husband, but the children are grieving for their father, even though um, they're quite mature. I mean, one of them is about 35 years old. But when you lose a parent, you could be any age.
1: It's a beautiful novel, and I look forward to it being translated for everyone to read in Scandinavia. I mean, loss and grief are such a big part of your writing.
0: Why is that? I do write about loss and grief, but but as in night sleep, death, the stars, I do suggest that there are many new beginnings. So the, the widow, over a period of a year, she meets somebody new, a completely different person, totally, totally different kind of person. And while she'll never love him as deeply as she loved her husband, she does come to love him. In other words, there are losses, but then there are some... Surprises in life. There's a Jewish expression a door closes, another door opens. So we have to remember, even in the bitterness of grief, there may be a door opening in a few months or a year, but there will be another door opening. Do you really think so? Is there yes. something you truly believe? Yes? Oh, yes, I believe that because that's happened with me in my life. Yes. Yeah, well, it has, and, and other people as well. Yes, I'm surrounded by people in my age group who have suffered losses and definitely something new happens. <laughs> I mean, not to go into details, but you can never, you never say never. There's a saying in boxing, never say never.
1: Now that you mentioned boxing, uh, maybe I can ask you, because your book on boxing was the first book that I read of yours, and it was a game changer. I love that you wrote this book, and I love the book. Thank um, you. I'm so
0: surprised and touched that you read it. I mean, not many people have read it, I think. I found it in my father's library, and I
1: read it, and
0: uh,
1: I loved it. Well, oh,
0: thank you so much. Well, let me explain a little bit. I'm holding one of the editions here. It's gone through several editions. For me, the challenge of writing about boxing, which my my father introduced me to, was how to find a way to write it. So basically, it's like a memoir. My father took me to golden gloves fights when I was a little girl, and yeah. that was my way. I wouldn't have gone by myself. I think anyone who becomes interested in a sport intensely is introduced to it by somebody. And for a girl, it's very often the father. It begins with a visit to Madison Square Garden when I'm an adult. And I was with my friend Richard Ford, who is a well-known writer, American writer, we went to see a boxing match that was a Hagler-Hearn's fight, which is quite famous, which probably nobody's had heard of. But in Madison Square Garden, is very rough atmosphere. Of course, it's shut down now with the quarantine. But in these days, it was very rough. People were smoking. They were all men, like 99% of the audience is men. They had beer cans. <laughs> It was a very rough atmosphere for a woman to be in, and so the atmosphere for me is like a feminist woman writer is going to this ultra-masculine setting. So I begin with an abject portrait of failure and how the masculine world hates failure, how angry the male spectators are, how furious and contemptuous they are at seeing failure because this is the world of male competition it's the world of boxing sort of the ultra macho sport where weakness is held in contempt it's in some ways an opposite of a world of women where many women want to nurture and help if somebody's hurt in this world of the macho world of boxing if somebody's hurt and can't fight back, there's no sympathy, because why were you there? The question is, why would you get in the ring if you can't fight? So these are issues that my book on boxing takes up one by one in these little chapters. And I began with a spectacle of failure, because I don't think most people understand that most sports are about failure. Most of the people who participate in any sport will never be champions. They will never make $50 million in one night. They will not only be failures in boxing, but they may be injured. They may have concussions. They may be killed. I wanted to focus on the reality of the sport rather than just look at the celebrities.
1: Uh, I want to unpack a couple of things there. I want to talk about two of the things that you said one is this you say it's it's a masculine world the roughness and the potential for violence is this is this purely masculine isn't this a part of who we are also and well, how does that maybe express itself in women maybe not uh, well, 99% th- in boxing but but in other ways
0: no i think that you're right i think that there are some women who are very aggressive i'm more looking at the sport as a historical phenomenon in the united states you know i went I was actually at these boxing matches, sort of looking around and seeing who was there. You know, it's like the phenomenon of, of smoking cigars. Is that gendered? Well, maybe not, but when you look at the statistics, you probably discover that most cigar smokers are men. I'm not saying that, that they all are. And as, as a novelist, I tend to be writing about a world that's real, Rather than a world that's theoretical now in theory Men and women may be equally gendered from the culture in theory But in reality, we see cultures that are dominated by the patriarchal religions and by patriarchal political structures Maybe less I think in the scandinavian countries than in america In america, it's very difficult for any woman to run for a high public office because she will be violently attacked as a woman. I mean, you may think that's impossible or wrong, but Hillary Clinton, for instance, was not only attacked politically, she was attacked as a woman. She was attacked for a biological phenomenon. She happened to be a woman. There was almost no way that Hillary Clinton could surpass for gender, whereas for the male politician, there's no, no there's no barrier at all. Female politician in America is somebody who has to prove, again and again and again, that she's very special. She's not weak. She's not emotional. There are the standards for a woman politician are much higher than for a male in America.
1: How do you think uh, Biden's choice of Kamala Harris will do in the light of what you're saying? Do you have hope or are you are you worried?
0: (laughs) Well, we all know that women politicians who are so wonderful, they have so many qualities. The fact that they're women is their is their only disability. But maybe in the case of Kamala Harris, maybe being a person of color and a person of high, high, high quality, maybe that will help her overcome a you know, Female in, in the United States. I have to explain that. This is not anything that's gendered. It's not even from the culture. It's basically from evangelical Christianity. We have a large population in this country that believes that women belong in the home. Women should be mothers and daughters and wives. There's a strong population of religious fundamentalists who don't even believe in education for women. So when they look at a a female politician, they see something that's outrageous to them. They see a violation of this biblical injunction that the wife is supposed to follow the husband. So I'm not saying that there's anything in human beings that's genetically that we are not equal, equally able to be leaders. It's just something that has happened as a consequence of a very patriarchal religion in the United States, which you don't, you don't have in Scandinavian countries, though maybe you did in the 19th century, but you've, uh, you've evolved through it. I also want to um, pick
1: up on another thing you talked about when you talked about boxing and talked about sports. You said that all sports have that big element of failure, All sports are really about failure and how you start your book on boxing with failure. Do you think the same
0: goes for writing? I always try to write about uh, the realistic perspective. So I very often write about working class people who may be caught up in the dream of America, but they're living in a reality. And I have a particular sympathy for the working class. In our country, you can work and work and work and work and still be falling behind financially. It's a very ultra competitive capitalist consumer culture which is not as evolved as Northern Europe. I mean, nobody would really, almost nobody would say that, uh, would disagree with that. We don't have national health. We don't have many, many things that's taken for granted. In more civilized countries, the United States is a lesser civilized country It's an exciting country to have lived in Right now under the trump administration. It's a very divisive country. So It's contentious and tumultuous And we have more like late 19th century america Where there's a rampant capitalism without regard for the consumer and for ordinary people Without much sympathy for people who've fallen behind or people who are ill, people who don't have health insurance, it's become a society of haves and have-nots, and those who have have a lot of money. I think we have over 300 billionaires in this country, and most of them are very invisible. They try to hide the fact that they have an enormous amount of money. Uh, There are only a few billionaires who are very famous. (laughs) but there are a lot of billionaires in the country. And conversely, there are many, many millions of people who not only have no money saved, but they're in debt and they may not have health insurance. So when I write about America, when I write about reality, I have to write about a very turbulent uh, and divisive and difficult reality. I try to see that personal relations, Within a family or between a man and a woman or two women in friendship I try to see that the human relations are really our salvation on a small scale We can make of our own lives something very positive And wonderful But the larger scale the society itself is very tumultuous
1: There's a lot of discussion now In the united states and also in europe about identity politics, but you seem to be more concerned with class discussion.
0: Well, I think because I'm a white person, I'm basically writing from the perspective of the the white majority. So I do have novels that that look at the um, the racial the disparity between the classes racially, probably the Marxist idea of there being classes and essential warfare between the classes. I think that fits in very well with identity. Identity politics is a slightly pejorative word, you know, in this country. If you say identity politics, you're sort of categorizing it, you know. I think the Black Lives Matter movement would feel that they were beyond identity politics. they are basically human beings who happen to be Black who are disenfranchised and Black Lives Matter began with just wanting to be protected against white policemen coming into their neighborhoods. It's replicating the history of the Black Panthers in the 1960s. So these are movements that they start to be called identity politics, but it's like somebody who's who's drowning, is struggling to live, and you don't want to call that the identity politics, because they're basically human beings who have to survive. And so they connect with one another for strength in numbers, which everybody does. It's, it's, a, it's a natural instinct.
1: You said in a uh, recent speech, when you accepted the Jerusalem Prize for the Freedom of the Individual Society, when you accepted the prize, you spoke of art's role in bearing witness and you said that bearing witness is protecting the vulnerable, the orphaned, and the disenfranchised. Do you feel that that is your role as an author, to bear witness?
0: I think because I I began as a writer when I was so young. I was living and reliving my life as a young girl in a farming area and in a very uh, uncultured part of upstate New York, um, we're not talking about New York City. We're talking about a rural community where there was very little education So there's a lot a good deal of violence against children There was family and domestic violence. I'm thinking of fathers who would beat their children. Literally children who are my friends and I was often uh, Thinking about and writing about girls. I went to school with Who never graduated? They never had a chance my own family was very supportive of education for for me but these other girls got pregnant when they were in eighth grade or they you know they dropped out of school they got married when they were 16. (laughs) so i've written a lot about those girls because of course they would never be able to tell their own stories then as i got older i got more interested since i was living in detroit michigan i got interested in telling the stories of people whom I had never met, but people who I read about or maybe uh, were living in the same city I was living in. I would do research for a novel like them or a novel like A Book of American Martyrs. In fact, I do research for many of my novels into the lives of people different from myself. They could be people of color. Uh, They could just be poor people, uh, working class people from the South, who are not in my own family, but I felt that I could connect with them because they they reminded me of people in my own family. When I wrote my novel Blonde about Norma Jean Baker, who becomes Marilyn Monroe, I really connected with Norma Jean because she was sort of like my mother. How? In what way? Because of (laughs) just the, the fact that she was so poor. She was an orphan. She was actually given away by her mother. Um, My own mother was never in an orphanage, but Norma Jean was in an orphanage. Norma Jean never had a father, and my mother's father had died. And and I thought both of them as being very tough. You have to be so tough to survive. Norma Jean Baker had a mother who was schizophrenic, who couldn't stand to touch her. She didn't want to be hugged. The mother put Norma Jean in a foster home and in an orphanage. She basically wasn't a mother. So Norma Jean couldn't be adopted because she had a mother. So it was a paradox. And when I wrote about the woman who had become Marilyn Monroe, I began with her as a little girl because I felt I could connect on that level and then following Norma Jean, following a girl who makes her way. First she works in a defense factory, and then she becomes a model, and then she becomes a starlet, and then she becomes a famous movie star. But she's basically always exploited by men through her whole life. And when she finally dies at the age of 36, she doesn't have much money, and she dies all alone, And it isn't even clear if she died by her own hand, by taking barbiturates. It's not clear whether she meant to die. It's not clear to whom she was speaking on the telephone the night that she died, because all the phone records were expunged. Uh, All these things seem to me to strike at the heart of the woman, the innocent and open and vulnerable woman who's exploited by the patriarchy, though she's strong too because like marilyn monroe she did achieve a real career she was very strong at the same time she was tragically
2: vulnerable
1: You know, last week, I interviewed uh, the American poet Terence Hayes, oh, yeah. who writes a lot about fathers. And it reminded me of that because you were just talking about mothers, and you have spoken of your mother. And actually, Terence Hayes has a question for you, because that's what we do on the podcast, How to Proceed. Every author that I talk to has a question for the next author to create a kind of conversation. And... If you will listen now, uh, I will ask the sound guys here to play the question from Terrence Hayes.
2: Well, you know, I would see Joyce every now and again. It's been a little while, especially with the quarantine. I would see her around our creative writing house at NYU when she would come in and teach classes. And I miss her. If she was teaching or when she teaches and these young writers are in front of her, what she gonna tell them? You know, I'm still trying to figure that out too. How would she keep them focused? How will she, um, how will she distract them? How would she direct them? Um, because I'm wondering myself. That's the first thing I wonder. What is anybody gonna do with anybody under the age of thirty? <laughs> because everybody under the age of thirty, at least, is certainly going to be needing some direction and some help here going forward after the whole thing—coronavirus, Trump, the universe. So I just wonder what uh, she and her wisdom would do on that first day of class.
0: Well, that's interesting. Of course, I'm still teaching at NYU, but of course, it's all shut down. So we're not going to see one another for a while, but I have been teaching there and I will be teaching my class at NYU in about a week or so, actually. Well, it's such a good question. I probably would tell my students that they should write out of their hearts, you know, that write about what they want to write about. They might want to write about the current situation politically and emotionally. They might want to write some confessional first-person journal-like memoirist work about what it is to be, you know, 22 years old in a pandemic. Or they might want to write about something that has nothing to do with it. They might want to be like Emily Dickinson. She's not, Emily Dickinson didn't write about the civil war. Walt Whitman did write about the civil war and and they were contemporaries. So basically I would just tell my students to do what they feel they were born to do, you know, to to write their hearts out. And I think if you approach all the writing and prose and poetry from that, perspective you can't go wrong you may you may end up writing about politics because you want to not because somebody says you should be
1: you know it reminds me what you just said now i have to say to our audience that you have notifications on your computer so when we hear the pling it is from your computer and uh I can't turn it off, otherwise
0: I wouldn't be able to hear Lynn.
1: But this is the kind of thing that makes us, even though we are very far apart, these strange little things that happen on Zoom, it makes us closer and more intimate in one way, because we're here with you, and I can hear every time your computer says, "pling," and then I know somebody else wants to talk to you too, and I'm very happy that I'm the one who's talking to you right now.
0: I should tell you that I have a kitty in the room with me. And this little kitty gets jealous. So sometimes when you're talking to me, the little kitty comes over and bites my toes. (laughs) She's so jealous. Like, why why am I focusing on this person in Oslo when I could be petting her? Maybe she's she's napping now. (laughs) What, What is
1: the kitty's name?
0: The kitty's name is Lilith. Lilith. Then I have another kitty named Zanchi, but they go in and out, but the one of them gets very jealous. And so once in a while I would kind of go like this because she was biting my toes. <laughs> you know, uh, that's such a good question from Terrence. I want to say Terrence is Hayes is such a great poet. I've heard him read and his poetry, his sonnets are just so powerful. And I, that's very touching his question.
1: I read something, thinking about both you and Terence Hayes, in a lecture later published in a book, in a lecture called Is the Uninspired Life Worth Living? I love that title. You talk about the importance of fierce attentiveness to the specific. I feel that that is something that you and Terence Hayes have in common, the fierce attentiveness to the specific. Can you tell me what you mean by that?
0: Well, that's what I noticed in your memorous novel, that fierce, passionate, loving attentiveness to specifics, to replicating the father's language, even when he's stammering and he's not able to quite remember, and to describing atmosphere, which is so hard to describe in your novel. It's translated unquiet in English unquiet and i i thought that was so touching and opening your book anywhere there's a rawness to it and i just felt i could be that person if i had a tape recorder trying to record my father i mean i would never have thought of doing that but for you that would be natural to do because of your background my background Nobody would think of doing that. But of course, it would be like a sacred opportunity. And even when it's a failure and something goes wrong, that's part of the experience. So we do live our lives in terms of these specific details, the richness. And that's why we love our friends. There may be some special quality to a friend that's annoying or exasperating, but endearing you know the little habits and mannerisms that our friends have or relatives they may be in some ways annoying (laughs) but yet we love them we love them for those habits that they have which somebody else might not appreciate
1: thank you for those words about unquiet that means a lot to me um You have meant so much to me for so long as an author. And so I also want to thank you for that. I do have some last questions before I'll ask you to read from Blackwater, actually. And, you know, I I want so much to ask you about your grandmother, because in the speech where you accepted the Jerusalem Prize, you talk about art as bearing witness. And you've spoken eloquently about that today. But you also speak about your grandmother. So much of the speech is about your grandmother. And you talk about that she was the one who gave you books. She was the one who read for you. And that reminded me of my grandmother because my grandmother was a bookseller. And she gave me books. But then you write, it would not be until after her death that we came to realize how little my grandmother spoke of herself and how little we knew of her. And I'm wondering if this woman who you knew so little about, but who was so important to you, I'm wondering what kind of meaning she has had in all your writing. We've talked about your mother, but your grandmother, this mysterious woman who nobody knows anything
0: about. Tell me about her. Well, she, she was a, a fascinating person. I wrote a novel called The Gravedigger's Daughter which is basically about the secret life of my grandmother, but it's mostly fiction. I had to imagine it. Imagine her. Her She had a very difficult life. She is from a Jewish family, but they were Jews who came from Germany in the late 19th century to upstate New York, and they did not want to be identified as Jews. So they were... By they, I mean the parents, because the ch- my grandmother was a child. She wasn't really part of uh, any decision. But they did not identify as Jews, so they, they never acknowledged their religion. Oh, they didn't have any religion. They wanted to put history behind them because of the anti-Semitism of Europe and the barbarism. And then, of course, during the Nazi era, they wouldn't have wanted to acknowledge that they were Jewish. So my parents, and even my father, who was my grandmother's son, never knew that my grandmother was Jewish. Only when a biographer wrote about me and did some research, it came to light. Her name was Morgan Stern, which was translated into Morning Star. But the Jewish name is Morgan Stern. That was the original name. So it's a long story. And. My grandmother was uh, the most important person in my life shaping me as a writer because she gave me all my books. When I was a little girl, she gave me my first real book, which is Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. I was eight or nine and that changed my whole life. I had no idea at the time, but it was like the main, the great book of my whole life that my grandmother gave me. Then she gave me other books and she gave me a toy typewriter. Then she gave me a real typewriter. (laughs) And so she started me on a world of storytelling and reading. That's been my whole life. Now my parents were not like that. My parents were not, uh, I didn't get this from my parents. It was from my grandmother. Later on, my parents were readers of my writing. And my father even went to college as an adult, but it all came from my grandmother originally.
1: You know, Terrence Hayes asked you a question, and and I'm wondering if you have a question for our next guest, the poet and essayist Mary Ruffell.
0: Do you have a question for her that we can pass on? Yes, definitely. I'm so interested in what Mary Ruffo will say. I'm wondering what the great influences on her work have been. Poetry in America is so diverse, and I think it's thriving because of the Internet. People are reading poetry all the time. There's something about—this is really part of a long question for Mary— whether Mary thinks that the internet and the online culture have actually helped poetry, helped just the experience of hearing poetry more often and very easily. I mean, in an ordinary day, I'm clicking onto poems, maybe 12 poems a day. And I think ordinarily before the internet, one would make a conscious choice to go and read some poetry in a book or maybe in the New Yorker. But, it would be a conscious choice. Now the choice sort of comes to you. Do you want to click onto this and see what this poem by Mary Rufo is or Terrence Hayes? And you always say yes, you know, you sort of click onto it. So I'm reading poetry by people whom I admire enormously, whom I might not have even thought about reading, you know, at that minute or, or that day. So I'm wondering if Mary thinks in some bizarre and paradoxical way. That we might be actually living in an age where poetry is more read and more more needed than any other time.
1: I think that's a great question to Mary Rufel, And you also answered it partly yourself because you say that you go on on the internet and you read things that you might not have read before the internet. So I am wondering, because you are a writer who you have written in all genres and in so many forms i mean you've written memoir novels and everything in between nonfiction essays you're a critic and you know attention so important to a writer and you've written about that that we have to be attentive to what's around us and all the distraction i mean when the lockdown happened i talked to a lot of writers and I felt it myself, I wasn't able to write, I wasn't able to think because I was just so distracted. My attention was taken from me. Is this something that you experienced or, or no?
0: Well, I think so. It's a little hard for me to say because I also lost my husband in April, 2019. So that was such a devastating loss for me that my concentration was shattered then And so the pandemic for me is like the same thing intensified, you know. I can't say that my life would be so different. When you have a tremendous personal loss, it's so close to you, you know. Everything is filtered through that loss. So I'm not really able to say that my concentration definitely was shattered. But I don't know if it was you know, already shattered because of losing my husband. Obviously, living alone, one has a lot of time, but oddly enough, the more time you have as a writer, sometimes that backfires. If you have only one hour to work, you might work really hard. If you have 18 hours, you might fritter it away and um, you you can lose all the 18 hours. So I agree Uh, I think that the loss of concentration because of the pandemic was serious, but more in the beginning. We're getting used to living in isolation now, and many of us do see friends. We keep a social distance, and we wear masks. So we're learning to live to survive, I think. And so I think we're gaining back our sense of concentration. Are you writing anything now? Oh, yes. I'm working on a novel that I began quite a while ago, and I'm working on a collection of short stories. After I publish stories in magazines, I usually revise them. So I take a collection of stories that has a theme, and I rewrite most of the stories to, to connect with one another thematically. I don't usually just gather stories together individually. I try to make a collective. So that the first story leads to the second story and the third story. And then the the final story in the collection will have some resonance with the first story. So when I'm working on a book of stories, it's almost like writing a book. And I'm doing that. I'm revising. So that's been very, very wonderful. In a pandemic, revising is much easier than writing the first draft.
1: What comes first, and this is my last question, when you are writing a novel or any kind of book in any genre, what comes first, the form, the structure, or the plot, or the voice? What
0: is it that comes first to you? Well, you mentioned my novel, Black Water, and that was a story that uh, was, a, was floating around America about the Chappaquiddick incident. It was a tragedy, of a, particularly from a woman's perspective. A woman had been victimized, but the woman had no voice. Like nobody thought about her and and nobody cared about her. She more or less disappeared. I wanted to write a short novel and I chose the form of the ballad, like a musical form, because it was like, to me, like a medieval ballad of a girl who had been violated, taken out into the woods and left to die by a seducer. So the, nove- the novella took the form of really short chapters, always repeating one line as in a chorus. So it, to me, the form of the ballad was the perfect form to tell that story. In other cases, I have novels that are more about families. And so I have to have an older generation and their children and the children growing up. So that might be a three-part novel with three sections the first generation growing up and the second generation being born and then the second generation growing up. So a lot of my writing depends upon the vastness, you know, the size of the story that I'll tell. I think on that note, I would love to ask you if you could read a little piece from Blackwater. Well, as I was saying, I chose the form of the ballad, And so the first chapter is, is one paragraph, it's the first chorus of the ballot. The rented Toyota, driven with such impatient exuberance by the Senator, was speeding along the unpaved, unnamed road, taking the turns in giddy, skidding slides, and then, with no warning, somehow the car had gone off the road and had overturned in black rushing water, listening to its passenger side rapidly sinking. Am I going to die like this? So that's the first chapter. And the italicized words, am I going to die like this, are the thoughts of the young woman. We haven't met her yet, but we'll meet her in subsequent chapters. Then each little chapter has the final line, and the black water filled her lungs and she died. In other words, it's repeated. She doesn't die immediately, when we drown, we die by degrees. So it's like she's dying, but then she comes back to consciousness, and then she dies and she comes back. So the whole novel has the structure of a ballad. Joyce Carol Oates,
1: thank you so much for joining me here. I hope we will meet again in person. I hope Uh, so. I'm so grateful that you took the time, and I enjoyed this conversation so much. So thank you so much on behalf of myself and everyone in Norway and Sweden and Denmark who will be participating in this conversation.
0: Well, I've visited those beautiful countries in the past, so I'm looking forward to visiting those beautiful countries in the future.
1: We look forward to having you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stay safe
1: well. Thank you. Yes. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. Tune in for our next episode of How to Proceed when Lynn Ullman is joined by Mary Rufel. And
0: please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Joyce and Lynn talked about.